and welcome to the Give Him Six podcast, the podcast where we talk about Tennessee and the SEC East. Today we have a very special guest, Scott Rank from the History Unplugged podcast, coming to talk with us about the history of football. So how are you doing, Mr. Scott? Doing all right, thanks. Uh, Thanks for having me. I uh, never guessed I'd be on a football podcast. I don't know a whole lot, but I'll do my best to keep up. All right, sounds great. So what are some of your background uh, and what you do? So I'm a historian in my day job. I studied history, uh, did a PhD in it. Uh, But I've been a podcaster for about five years, and I like studying the past in whatever direction it takes me. And sometimes in, in an academic direction, if it's studying about presidents or kings or sultans or whatever, but I also like looking at the weirder corners of history, such as the American military's attempt to use camels to carry equipment in the American desert, or if all of the U.S. presidents fought each other, who would win? And I don't mean in the argument sense of fight, but in an actual this fight sense. So, um, yeah, I just, I, I like to explore history wherever it goes, and uh, I have a podcast now called History Unplugged, where I do both longer episodes where I'll interview a book author or a historical consultant or whatever, and then I also do shorter question and answer episodes where I'll take uh, a question from the audience and I'll answer absolutely anything that somebody asks me, uh, such as what's the origin of pig Latin or if you wanted to go back in time and try to assassinate Hitler, how would you do that? Or anything that anyone could imagine. Wow. Uh, I'll link your podcast to the show notes in this episode so that our listeners can get to you. So what are some very old or ancient sports that were uh, like football? Well, I think that the closest example we have, and this is a sport that's almost universal, is wrestling. Uh, you can find wrestling in ancient Greece. If you read Homer's The Iliad, you find that Achilles was a... He's famous for almost any type of combat skill, but one of the things he does is wrestling. Uh, wrestling is important because, okay, you don't need any equipment. That's one thing. It's a show of strength. So if you're in almost any primitive culture, one of the rituals you would have is a show of strength, and wrestling is a way to do that. Also, it's something that's seen as improving yourself as a person. Among the ancient Greeks, they had an idea that to become virtuous, you have to be virtuous. You need to be um, disciplined in mind, but it's equally important to be disciplined in body. So Plato was a wrestler. The Olympic Games were held as a way to improve their own condition. And this is an idea that exists in the ancient world, but it goes all the way up well into American history. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt was quite sick when he was a child. He was ill. He suffered from asthma. He was nearsighted. And his father told him, Teddy, you have the mind, but you don't have the body. Uh, So what he did is Teddy Roosevelt went out. He trained in boxing. He trained in wrestling, thinking that to really improve himself and become a great man, I have to be physically fit. So wrestling is this ancient sport And football doesn't directly evolve out of wrestling. It evolves more out of rugby, but rugby is not an ancient sport. But what football does is, at least in its early stages, it has the same spirit of wrestling, of 
using showing of strength to um, kind of show off your mettle and improve yourself. And a lot of our early presidents were frontier wrestlers. So Andrew Jackson, he was um, he was a wrestler and he kind of showed off how tough he really was. He refused to stay pinned when someone would pin him. When it was over, he would come back and say, no, 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 we're going again until I win. Abraham Lincoln was the county wrestling champion in Illinois. No way. He, there's a famous episode. Yeah, I mean, there's a famous episode where uh, some local ruffians, some local troublemakers will kind of beat up the new guy in town and they try to take it on Abraham Lincoln. And at one point when he got annoyed with this uh, one local thug, he lifted him up by his neck and shook him like a rag doll and then threw him Whoa. on the ground. So, yeah, yeah Lincoln's pretty tough. Um, so, yeah, I would say wrestling, in terms of the spirit of a contest of strength, that's where football can be traced back to. Neat. So uh, you talked a bit about how football evolved from rugby. Um, what about that? How did it evolve from rugby? Yeah, so some of the origins of football, it's, um, it, well, it stems from two sports. Uh, one is rugby and the other is soccer. And rugby had, at, these, at this point, those sports had enjoyed a long-time popularity in many countries on earth. Uh, so if, if we look at how football is played in America, one date that we can trace back to is 1869, uh, November 6th, where two colleges, Rutgers and Princeton, play what was called the first college football game. But it wasn't until the 1880s that um, rugby players from Yale and other colleges pioneer rules that change rugby into what we understand to be football. Uh, this has to do with some of the differences between rugby and football. And I, um, I, I can't spell out or I can't detail a lot of what these differences are, but it has to do with uh, throwing the ball, what you can do to kick it in the game, when the ball can touch the ground and all those things. Uh, so the, it starts to evolve out of rugby around the 1860s and 1880s. Uh, part of the reason are that, um, well, there's a lot of them, but I would say football is, it's a uniquely American sport. And one thing, one reason that football becomes more possible is there is better agriculture in America. At this point, agriculture is more effective. People have better nutrition. They're larger. Having an offensive lineman is possible in a way that it's not when in the early 1800s, almost everyone is working in agriculture. They don't have the, really the free time. Uh, their, their nutrition is quite poor. So how are you going to field offensive linemen? I mean, just, mm -hmm, and yeah. if you think about it globally today, football is kind of a weird sport. Um, it's, it's expensive. Getting all that equipment costs a lot of money. You need a large population that's well-fed. I mean, think about American football in Mozambique or Africa, where people are pretty thin. You're, just, you're not going to see a football team. And I lived in Turkey for a number of years. People are getting larger, but they were, there's a few places where American football was played. But for most people, they didn't understand the rules. To them, it was just way too complicated. And um, you, couldn't, you couldn't find like a Samoan guy who weighs 280 pounds to be your center or your 
or, or whatever position on the offensive line. But right. anyway, getting back to where it starts, um, in America, people are getting larger. Nutritionally, they're better off. So you can field larger players. And um, there's also, at the same time, in American society, there's growing levels of wealth. Um, there's growing um, industrialization. And what that means is that you have a new middle class that are working regular hours. They have a dependable source of income in a way that they didn't where they were just working on a farm. They're not as interested in their work. They don't really care about the factory once their shift is over. And with this new disposable income, now that they can um, spend it on something, and a lot of people become interested in sports. Also, in the late 1800s, you have electricity growing. You have light. So now you can have nighttime games. You have factory or you have uh, trains so that teams can travel to different cities more easily to play against one another. Uh, motion picture technology in the 1890s allows fans to see prize fights, see boxing. Boxing is probably the most popular spectator sport in America in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, so this is what gets sports entrenched in American culture in the mid to late 1800s. Great. Um, one more thing. You talked a bit about why it started, but uh, do you know about when it, people really became involved with football and really wanted to um, advocate it about the time period that was? Well, another date that's really important for football is November 12, 1892, and that's the day that professional football begins. And what that means is that uh, the Allegheny Athletic Association plays against the Pittsburgh Athletic Club. These are just two athletic clubs. They're not what we would recognize as an NFL team. And the game itself isn't very momentous. There's not much important that happens. But what is important is one of the players called uh, William Pudge Heffelfinger was paid $500 to play the game. And we think, well, so what? Well, that means that he is a professional player. He is paid to play. Uh, something else that is happening with sports in the late 1800s is that sports are becoming more popular, like I said, with industrialization. And this is also something that kicks off after the Civil War, where men are brought together in enormous numbers. They have a lot of downtime between battles. So men are boxing, they're playing baseball, they're racing horses, many for the first time in their lives. So that's something that leads to the rise in interest in sports. But um, in the late 1800s, you have a division in sports, and that's uh, amateur versus professional. It was upper-class people liked amateurism, where you don't get paid to play sports. You just play sports for, your, for its own sake. And um, so polo players would do this. Uh, in the early Olympics, it was a rule that you had to be an amateur. And when we hear that today, we think, that sounds weird, because the point of the Olympics is that you have the best people in the world playing. When we hear amateur, we think of someone who just plays on the weekends and isn't very good. No, you want a professional. Well, back in the 1800s, amateur meant that you were wealthy, you just played the game because you loved it, you weren't just play, playing for money, kind of like a a hobbyist or, or, or a tradesman who gets a paycheck. And no one was really getting rich off of sports in the 1800s. It was seen as like a working class thing or a middle class thing. 
you would almost like snub your nose or you would, you would look down on someone who got paid for sports because they weren't getting rich. They were doing it because they had to. But it was wow. an upper class thing. I'm a polo player. I'm wealthy. So, um, so those rules on the Olympics about being amateur, that goes all the way into like the 1980s where the famous hockey match between America and the Soviet Union where America wins in 1980 those weren't professional hockey players. So this rule about amateurism goes all the way into the 20th century. Wow. I think that's very neat about how uh, the Romans and the amateurs, they would only allow the amateurs to play. So, um, yeah. Did, do you know if the amateurs and the uh, professional players, did they play by the same rule set or by different rule sets? Yeah, as far as I know, they did play by the same rules. So that's something that um, is similar. But I, I can't, I, I could be wrong on that. So I don't want to um, uh, like hold to that too closely. Um, but I think that there, there, there is flexibility. Um, and it's not like the NCAA today where rules are absolutely ironclad. Um, a lot of these sports grow out of clubs. And um, they would have rules, but it'd be sort of like an intramural league where people aren't just coaches and referees will, um, of course, they, they'll follow rules, but they don't feel the stress of enforcement the way that an NCAA uh, team or a league would be held today. Um, so, yeah, and football is still undergoing this evolution. Like I mentioned, it evolves from uh, English rugby. Um and it mostly comes out of uh, Yale University, especially when football gets refined into its own sport. And um, so college sports begin as intramural activities, but it's not until the late 1800s, early 1900s, that they come under faculty control and they come under faculty supervision that rules become more rigidly enforced. So these, these were more of college clubs that were coming together and playing. Right. Um, and actually, uh, I, there, there's a wonderful example of how loose the rules were for college football. There's a great story of um, a famous game between Harvard and the Carlisle Indian Industrial School in 1903. Do you mind if I get into that? Oh, I would love for you to. Okay. So a lot of football, what's the, the reason that many of the rules exist for football is because at some point there wasn't a rule. And there was one college, the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, that openly exploited this lack of rule in the most just ridiculous way you could imagine. And the, the philosophy of the school was, if there's not a rule against it, then do it. Um, I call it the Air Bud rule. Um, the, there's a really cheesy movie uh, called Air Bud. Are you yeah. familiar with this? I, I just want to engage if there's generational awareness of this I, film. I have seen that movie. It's very cheesy. Okay. Super cheap. Basically, it's a dog that plays basketball on a middle school team. And at one point, the, re the movie's totally forgettable, but what has lasted from that movie is um, the coach is arguing with a referee, and he says, and eventually they go to the rule book, and somebody says, wait, there's nothing in the rule book that says a dog can't play basketball. Turns out that actually a dog would not be able to play, but... <laughs> The point being that, like, if there's not a rule against it, you can do it. And that is the guiding philosophy of this football team, the American Indian, um, the Carlisle Indian Industrial School. 
Um, so this was a school in Pennsylvania, and it began in 1879 when Lieutenant Colonel Richard Henry Pratt, he's a fierce abolitionist, but he also deeply believed, he wanted Native Americans to have a place in American society. Now, he also thinks that they need to be civilized into American society, so he, you know, he has some kind of outdated values in that sense, but what like to go to the Dakota Territory to recruit students, put them in a college, and hope that if American Indians can be educated, then their culture won't be obliterated and wiped out by kind of like the oncoming tsunami of um, American settlers and uh, mostly white Europeans. Okay, so this is the school, Carlisle Indian Industrial School. And uh, what he, one of the cornerstones of the school was its football team. Uh, students started a football team in 1882. By the early 1900s, they're one of the most dynamic teams in college football. They're the ones who pioneered the forward pass. They pioneered the overhand spiral. The thing is, when these start, these are actually tricks. Because, like I said, at the time, football was like rugby, where you had two teams that smash into each other. And um, it's really like it's a show of strength more than anything else. Uh, teams would plow against each other and carry the ball upfield with bruising strength. But the Carlisle Indian School, the technical school, had to do something different because many of its players were very small. They were 140 pounds, 150 pounds. They had to play Ironman, and you're going up against Harvard and Yale where you have players that are 180, 200, 210 pounds. So they had to do the Air Bud rule. If there's not a rule against it, we're going to do it. And Imagine if you'd never seen a spiral pass before. You would just be dumbfounded by that. And Harvard players didn't know what to do. They would look at each other so confused, thinking, wait, is that, is that allowed? Is that okay? And after the Carlisle team member runs to the end zone for a touchdown, the referee has to scratch their head and think, well, there's nothing that says you can't do it. And then these basically evolve out of them um, doing that. So there's... It, it was pure innovation and using the resources they had. Um, my absolute favorite story of what they did is in 1903 when there's a game uh, between Harvard and Carlisle. And Harvard didn't really take Carlisle seriously. They um, thought, okay, it's just these Indians. I mean, a lot of schools were racist against them, of course, and thought these, these uncivilized Indians were Harvard. We're, we are the smartest minds in the world, basically. So the... Carlisle had a great weapon, its quarterback and team captain, uh, Jimmy Johnson, who was experienced. He was only 140 pounds, but he was really fast. So it was, so Carlisle developed a special play to use against Harvard, and they hated the fact that Harvard didn't take them seriously. What they would do is that uh, there were elastic bands sewn on the jerseys that were tight enough that you could actually stuff a football in the back of a player's jersey <laughs> and hide it so that um, when the players took off from a huddle, the opposing team wouldn't know who actually had the football. It was uh, developed specifically for Charles Dillon. He's one of the largest players for Carlisle. He was a lineman who was six feet tall, 190 pounds, and um, it was designed for kickoff. So as the ball descends in the arms of the quarterback, Johnson, the other players would huddle around him facing outwards. 
Then Johnson would slip the ball up the back of Dylan's jersey. Then after that, it was um, the huddle would split apart, leaving the opposing team with no idea where the ball had gone, and they would take off to the end zone. Uh, the, Carlisle is really excited. They want to use this play right away, but the coach tells them to wait until the game with Harvard. And that game with Harvard is in front of a capacity crowd of 12,000 people filling Soldier Field. It's not because they care about Carlisle so much, but because this is the last game at Soldier Field before it gets torn down. So that's why they want to be there. Okay. Okay, so game time comes. Uh, I think it's about halfway through, and uh, the, after the kick, Johnson sees that it's absolutely perfect. He catches it, and the Indians form a wall in front of the quarterback. Ducking behind the cluster of teammates, then um, they're able to, Johnson's able to put the football in the back of Dylan's jersey. He shouts, go, and then Carlisle scatters, and each player is hugging his stomach as if he held the football. The Harvard players are bearing down, down on them and tackling who they think has the football. They launch at Johnson, the quarterback. It, it's like the whole team basically piles on top of him. But then there's a roar that goes out across the stadium. Dylan is running for the end zone in a straight line toward the opposite goal, and the hump that's in the back of his sweater becomes obvious what it is. They realize that he has the football. So everyone in the stands knows it, but no Harvard player realized what's happening. Uh, the team, Harvard is still chasing the Carlisle backs and slamming them to the turf. And um, meanwhile, Dylan is just making a straight uh, beeline to the end zone. The spectators are yelling. They're pointing to Dylan as he's getting closer and closer to the end zone. And as a Harvard player scuttled around wildly looking for the ball, the crowd begins to shriek with laughter. Finally, the sweater and places it on the spikes it on the turf for a touchdown. And he, Dylan just ran 103 yards completely untouched. At this point, the Harvard coach, uh, John Cranston, that's his name, he's protesting to the official. But the Carlisle coach had warned the official that his team might attempt the play. And the referee watched carefully as it unfolded and he signals a touchdown. So there's a huge celebration on the Carlisle side. They foremost university in the country. They have an 11-0 lead. Uh, after halftime, Harvard is furious. They're absolutely pounding the Indians. They're flooding the field with fresh players while the Indians have to play Ironman. And, um, yeah, they weigh 30, 40 pounds more than them per player on average. Yeah, and eventually Harvard scores, and they're able to win the game 12-11. But for the Indians, they felt like it was a victory because they had outwitted Harvard. But all that to say, a lot of the rules come from this specific college that if there is a loophole, they will exploit it to be able to win. And uh, I don't know, I think that's an inspirational story of that football, it's not, football is what it is because it evolved out of kind of a test of raw strength, like, you know, where players just slam into each other and push into a highly strategic, highly tactical game that it is today. Wow. So um, with these rules, do you know what some of the first official rules included and what they were or when they were made, any of those? Um, I'm not really sure on the details, but most of them, they, they come about in the 1890s, 1900s. And it's really a case-by-case -case basis where rules are added as a team thinks, 
let's do a spiral pass. Is that allowed? Okay. And then as a result of the Carlisle game, there's a rule that you can't hide the ball, like you can't shove the ball up into a player's jersey. So that's a rule that comes out of a specific situation. It's really a lot like uh, constitutional law in America where we have general rules from the U.S. Constitution, but in terms of how the law is specifically laid out, judges are always referring to previous laws or previous court cases, and they'll cite those previous court cases, and these court cases spring out of real things that happen between two people. And that's a lot of how these rules evolve, out of specific situations that come up, and then a rule is made, and then more rules are made, and and that's, so it's an ongoing process. It's not like um, it, it comes fully formed in like 1895 or 1902. Okay. So um, that's all the questions I have for you right now. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast and taking time out of your day to do this uh, for me and for my cousin and my listeners. So um, what are some ways that people can contact you? Yeah, so the... Uh Website is uh, historyunpluggedpodcast.com. That's where you can find information about it. And if you'd like to submit a question to me about history, I'll answer just about anything that you throw at me. I love to go off and uh, research stuff, just like Elijah did for uh, this episode. I didn't know about Carlisle before we started, but uh, you can email me at info at historyonthenet.com, or you can leave a voicemail if you go to historyunpluggedpodcast.com, and there's instructions on how to do that there. Great. And to our listeners, remember that the Give Him Six podcast is always scoring touchdowns.